Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 302, and I spoke with Gary Tyler. In 1974, Gary Tyler was incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit, the murder of a young white boy named Timothy Weber. Weber was shot during an anti-integration riot that had broken out at Gary's school. Rioters attacked Gary's school bus of all-black children as they made their way from the school, and Gary was made the scapegoat by a vengeful sheriff and taken into custody. He was beaten. Child witnesses were threatened into giving false testimony. A murder weapon mysteriously appeared and disappeared during the trial, and an all-white jury convicted Gary and sentenced him to death. He was the youngest person in Louisiana's history to walk into Angola Prison's death row. In 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court found Louisiana's death penalty law unconstitutional and ordered the state to commute the death sentences to life without parole. So Gary's sentence was commuted and he was transferred to the general pop in the prison. Uh, There, he led several rehabilitation initiatives over the next four decades, including the Angola Drama Club, which is quite famous, actually. During the decades of his incarceration, more and more evidence piled up proving Gary's innocence. And though courts were in his favor three times and appeals courts ruled to overturn his convictions, he remained behind bars. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to sentence minors to life without parole and applied its decision retroactively and offered a plea bargain uh, to Gary uh, by the prosecutors to avoid another trial. Gary agreed to it. He agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter, which, I mean, I get it, but it also is infuriating because he didn't do anything, but it was the only way he was going to be able to get out. So in exchange for that, he got his freedom, and subsequently he was sentenced to 21 years, and having already served 41, he was released from prison in April of 2016. For those of you wondering how any of this could be possible, I encourage you to check out ADPA, A-E-D-P-A. The act created a wormhole that wrongfully convicted incarcerated individuals find it nearly impossible to get out of and to be released, even when overwhelming evidence proves their innocence. If you get HBO, check out Last Week Tonight with John Oliver from this recent episode, March 6th, because he does a deep dive into EDPA and uh, talks about how problematic it is. Definitely check that out if you can. That's the lowdown with Gary, and his story is incredible. He, it's hard to describe my experience of interviewing him, he's just kindness, first of all. I feel changed as a person having the experience of talking with Gary. I have no idea how anyone survives what he survived. I, it's, it's incredible. Really, 41 years behind bars for something you didn't do. I can't even begin to wrap my head around that. And not only did he survive it, but he turned it into something beautiful by helping others, by being a pillar inside of the prison community, by, you know, inspiring and holding people accountable and 
being a father figure, and in some cases, I suppose, a grandfather figure. Just an inspiring human being. I'm blown away, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode with you. Um, I want to mention real quick, iTunes only allows 300 episodes in their queue at a time, which means my... Now that I'm at episode 302, that means if you go looking for old episodes, it's going to start to not show. If you're an iTunes subscriber, it's not going to not show the old episodes. They're there. They exist. Uh, Please, if you want to go back and deep dive into some of the early stuff, you'll have to go to heyhumanpodcast.com. They're all available there, and I encourage you to do that. I checked into it, and apparently iTunes starts getting squirrely with the amount of space, and that's why they limit what you can see on their um, on their app and on their platform. So just they're not gone forever. Just go to heyhumanpodcast.com and you'll find them there. And I don't really know about the other podcast applications, if that's also the case with the 300, but I have a feeling it might be. So just an FYI. Uh, usual stuff. Social media, Hey Human Podcast, is on Facebook and Instagram. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, is Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. You can join the mailing list by going to susanruth.com. I know that's a totally different place, but on susanruth.com, you'll find out more about me, my art, and music, and all sorts of listed links where I'm being interviewed things like that. So definitely check that out. Um, Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. Uh, If you like music, check out Susan Ruth on iTunes or wherever you get your music. And on heyhumanpodcast.com, check out the links page. Every episode has links and I try to curate it specially for you so you can go to one-stop shop and learn about my guest and whatever we talked about in that episode. So lots and lots of links on the links page. Spend some time there. I promise it will definitely be worthwhile. While you're on heyhumanpodcast.com, check out the merch page, which is, I think, just called Store. And you can get Hey Human t-shirts or book bags, pencils, things like hats, that sort of thing. Uh, You can also find the Contribute This is an ad-free podcast, and every little bit helps. So if you feel like contributing to Hey Human, do so there. You can now subscribe to my YouTube channel, Official Susan Ruth, there on YouTube. I've got videos, and I will try to keep those current and updated. Subscribe. It super-duper helps. Let's get it. The the subscriptions going on the YouTube, y'all. That would be awesome. Once again, I must say, hang in there. I know things are just over-the-top, stressful out in the world. It's hard not to just think, what's the point? But, you know, hang in there. Uh, Be kind to each other. Be kind to yourself. It's okay to not be online for a few minutes. Don't doom scroll if it's for your mental health. I highly recommend that because it's easy to get sucked down into the vortex of all the terrible things happening in the world. I recommend puppy videos cat videos, the occasional funny chicken, whatever it takes to keep your spirits up. Uh, Yeah, so hang in there and thank you for listening and be well and stay safe. Here we go. 
Gary Tyler, welcome to Hey Human. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Or, well, I appreciate you coming. Yeah, for me to be here. I appreciate it. I, I see lots of fabric around here. Yes, uh, fabric that was donated to me from our donors and people who are encouraging me to come back and do the things that, I, that I'm good at. And that's creating art through, uh, through material. Yeah. Like quilting and stuff like that. You're a textile artist. Yes. Yeah. You know, so um, I got a, a, an order from uh, from some friends who came down from from Oakland who bought a great deal of material down and they helped me put it all on the uh, shelves and stuff yeah. last night. This is a cool space. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Bob. He's the one that made it possible. Our mutual friend Bob. Being, yes. Yeah. By being a strong advocate of mine. Yeah. I love yes. Bob. Yes, yes. He's a good human. He, he's definitely having, you know, a great deal of influence on, on a lot of people. Yeah. He's, uh, he's someone that believes in helping those that are in need. Yeah. We yeah. need those people in the world. We sure do. Yeah. I wish there yeah. were a few more, but at least we got the ones we got, right? Well, I mean, we're lucky to have such philanthropists that's, you know, yeah. that advocate our needs and their for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Let's talk about your childhood you grew up your young life in Louisiana? <laughs> One of 11 kids? One of 11 kids, of course. And now uh, you're talking about the you know, blast of the past. I mean, as a kid, I, you know, I would say that I was like any other normal kid growing up, in the South in particular. And um, of course, the environment itself was quite rough. And, but, but having, you know, come from a poor family that mother and father worked to support their families and did what they best to uh, to provide for their family. Mm -hmm. You know, so I had a you know relatively happy life growing up um, at that time. You know, so I was just like any other kid like playing baseball, <coughs> football Going to church on Sundays was inspired at one time to be a preacher. Oh, cool. You understand? Yes, but, you know, being baptized at a very young age. Religious family? Well, you know, we were Baptists. Yeah. Right. So, um, so you know, it's, it, it was, you know, a life that uh, I tend to reflect back on and, and just sometimes, you know, amazed that from then to now, how things have changed so, you know, so oddly. Like, like <laughs> what? Well, the, uh, the atmosphere, the politics, you know, and I know that every, you know, every five, 10, 15, 20 years, you have this cycle, mm -hmm. the cycle of a political revampment, you know, revamping, and, uh, and it just, you would think that after after so many years that things would be better than what it than what it was, but mm -hmm. it seemed like it's it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, I think about this a lot for kids that grew up in the in the deep south or in the south, seeing their counterparts, the kids that were growing up on the coastal cities, where I mean, clearly racism still exists. It's always existed, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, it may always exist, but 
did you ever think, oh gosh, if we lived in this other place, maybe things would be better? Or did you have an understanding of that at your young age? I wouldn't say that I had an understanding of, uh, of any other whereabouts no more than my immediate surroundings. And of course, I mean, you always wish that things were better. Mm-hmm. And, and as a child, you always have your fantasies. And, but you know, you, you tend to lose yourself into and the different characters like they had on TV, like back then they had Bucks Bunny and, you know, a Roadrunner and all of them, you know, stuff like that. You know, you kind of like, you have your own little fantasy world about things. But I really didn't become aware of, of uh, the existence outside my world until, um, 1970, when I had the opportunity to come to L.A. and stay with my sister. You know, just making uh, 12 years old. So that when, when coming out here was just like a mind blow up being, being introduced to a whole new, totally different world. How'd that change you? Well, I, it changed me a lot. Because uh, there was a lot of things that I was, I wasn't privy to, and you know sometimes your information you get it from like the uh, like the radio and the newspaper, but I wasn't, you could say, uh, 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 cognizant enough to really read the newspaper, but no more than looking at the sports sections and cartoon sections, things mm-hmm. like that. What they were showing on TV, opposed to what was being on television in the South, it was something totally different. Mm-hmm. Were you growing up in a more segregated part of town, or was your town? When I was in Louisiana, yeah, there was there was enclaves of uh, definitely of uh, black communities right in the middle of white communities and things like that. Sure. Yes. So Sometimes was, uh, economics supersedes race, so I wondered mm-hmm. if maybe like poor white kids and poor black kids were mingling no, together. Uh, no. Okay. No. Yeah. And you know, and they probably were poor white, you know, uh, 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 families. But back then, you really weren't able to tell a difference because you know, they were, they were generally separated from you. They lived in a white community. Yeah. Right. Sure. Did you, when you came back from Los Angeles, did you have a, a new outlook on how you wanted to, even though you were 12, I mean, that's a young age. Well, when I, came, when I came back from Los Angeles, I was, I was uh, what, uh, 14 years old. Oh, you spent two 15. years? Yes. Oh. Going on 15, of course, my whole view of things was totally different. I would say, I won't so much use the word radicalized, but people would say so because uh, I was, I lived in, I lived in South Central LA out there in Watts and, uh, and I was exposed to a lot of uh, political activities out there during, uh, during the time uh, exposed to black nationalism, Black Panther Panthers, Party, yeah. mm-hmm. having uh, chapters in the community, uh, United Slave, Us, and um, and you know you and you have you had demonstrations and protesting stuff that was going on out uh, back then, and uh, 
And, you know, of course, we, at the school I was going to, I mean, I didn't know anything about, you know, black history. The school in Louisiana. No, the school, the school in, in Louisiana didn't. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, okay. The civic books was all about. Still probably don't. <laughs> white America, European America, all yeah. right? In which case, right now, we see that as a trend to even abolish. Yes. You understand? You know, and, and that, to me, it was just, it just uh, a reversion now than it was back then mm -hmm. to try to keep people ignorant of who, them, who they are, you know, of themselves and, and you know and want they want them to know about others mm -hmm. as though like they don't have a history themselves and of course every every ethnic group have a history nonetheless uh when i came to uh los angeles i was introduced to negro history week in the month of february you understand and that's when i uh you know called a g woodson and and uh, uh, um, you can say Sir John Trout uh, and Frederick Douglass, mm -hmm. they was, I mean, they were people that I'd never heard of. And this was taught in the schools that I went to, where they had pictures of them on the walls and, and they had calendars and, you know, material that gave historical background of these, of these people. So, of course, it had a... It had a, a, a profound change in my life. And when I left from here, went back to Louisiana, it was like leaving out of the, you know, leaving out of the light, going into the darkness. And seeing the things that at one time I was blinded to, mm -hmm. that, hey, something is seriously wrong because where I just come from, People fought against this kind of stuff. You know, when during the, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, we watched on TV, you know, it was horrifying, but, you know, when your child you tend to be somewhat isolated from it because of due to your immaturity, you really don't know what's going on and things like that. But when I came out here, it kind of like awakened me to all these, make, made all these connections of the things that I saw on television and things like that, and that this was this was the struggle, what it was all about, the civil rights struggle. Was that the purpose of sending you to Los Angeles, or did they just send you to go hang out with your sister for a couple of years? No, I was I went to Los. Well, my sister she came down for the summer, like she always did. Uh, every year she came down for the summer to spend time with the family, and. Uh, and I was considered, always considered her favorite in the family. And uh, she had two girls. How much older is she? My sister May, she's the oldest of the family. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's she definitely, she's what, maybe about, about 10. Yeah. About 10, 15 years older than me. And enough to be a second mom. Right, I right. mean, that is my surrogate mother. She's just like my mother. Yeah. I mean, when I was out here, she was my mother. Yeah. <laughs> All right? And, uh, <laughs> But you know, she she she's definitely you know uh, you know the beacon in my life now after my mother passed. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, uh, she you know she asked me that I wanted to come back with her to Los Angeles, and I of course you know always loved my sister because you know she always she always spoiled me anyway. So I told her yes. So she asked my mother and father, and they said yes, she can go with you. 
didn't know what I was getting into, of course, but you know, just by the mere fact that it was cool, this is my sister here, you know, she wanted me to come back with her. I never, I mean, far as I ever went, you know, been out of the state of Louisiana, it was, uh, was either Mississippi or, or Texas, because I have family in, in Houston, Texas, mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, and, and, and Jacksonville, Mississippi, and places like that. But like I said, as a kid, you really don't know where you're going. I mean, you, you just take the, you know, you're taking a ride with the family, things like that. So, uh, but being able to, <coughs> excuse me, ride on a train for a few days coming out hit this way here, it's like you was able to see the, you know, the landscape of the country. So yes, it was uh, it was really cool. Did so. you travel by yourself? No, oh. uh-uh, we all went back together. Oh, you did, okay. Yes, yeah. we all went back together. Yeah. So it was, you know, it, it was great. So it was like, just like I said, it was, when I went back, it was like taking out the light, putting it to darkness, it was like, going, coming here, it was like, leaving the darkness and coming into the light. When you came back to Louisiana at 14, uh, for the next two years before the event we're going to talk about, uh, in those two years, did you feel like a responsibility to bring light to those dark places? Or did you have to sort of settle back into the status quo? Well, not that I was, at the time, I was awakened. It was, I was going through a transition by learning things and seeing things and being taught things. And whether it was my, you know, my part of, of advocating or, or, or trying to make change, no, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't understand that organizational level, mm. all right, that sense of advocacy. Now, when I was out here, I did, along with a few of my friends in the community, we, you know, we, we passed out uh, leaflets and, and petitions and, and everything, uh, you know, going to different houses and getting people to sign petitions for Angela Davis. And, and you know, because during that time, it was uh, like uh, the, the, uh, the Soul Dad uh, Brothers and, and San Quentin and stuff like that. So I think, you know, when I went back, it was like a light turned on that I didn't have to put up with the stuff that was going on down in the South and that I had to speak up. Now being consciously about what I was speaking about, being able to articulate it, nah. Yeah, I think it was more of an emotional thing by expressing out about what I didn't like you know, opposed to what I learned and what I know that was, you know, that was fair and unfair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you, your school was black and white, right? It was already integrated. Well, it was going through the transition, just like when I left from uh, Louisiana. They had, uh, they had just started integrating the school in 68. Mm -hmm. All right? And, and that was were also one of the uh, turbulent times of my life where, uh, where I guess where my mother really warmed up to, uh, to the idea of me leaving because when they integrated, when they integrated the schools in the South, we had a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. 
from the parents, the schools, as well as the students that we were not welcome. And I felt that that was one of the worst time of my life back then. You know, it was, you know, before we was integrated, I mean, we walked down the streets and, and, and gone in, 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 in communities that, you know, white communities being here, you know, being, being called the N-word and, and being ran out of the community, threatening and all that stuff. That, you know, it was like I said, kids, you know, it was like, okay, we know, we know the area wasn't a place for us to go and stuff like that. And, uh, and having to pass schools that, were, that, that was uh, segregated and seeing the white kids and everything and, and people calling you the N-word, you know, kids calling you the N-word. I mean, you kind of like, you don't get it. But it also, when they, when they start to integrate in the schools, it became up close in person then. When you just sit down at the bench and, and a white child come by you and call you, I mean, just call you, call you the N-word, like, that's your name. Very insulting, you know, and, you know, you kind of like, why, why she called me that? You couldn't go to the teachers because the teachers was, I mean, they, 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 uh, they basically, you understand, encouraged this kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. To them, it was, it was, it was cute. You understand? It wasn't nothing wrong. Right, and they probably many of the teachers didn't want the integration in the first place. Of course, they, they definitely was was against it because when we went to the school, see, I come from a school where the teachers, they they, they was concerned about all the students. They took their time with each and every student in a classroom. They made sure that you had homework, and you had to have your homework when you come back to you come back to school, especially that class. And uh, they like they invested in you, and you knew it was like leaving home and going to school. It was like you being being put in the care of another family member that loved you when it came down to the school teachers. When I went to, when we was integrated, we were like put in the back of the classrooms, separated from the white students. White teachers took, they took a time or his time with each and every white student and they took it for granted that we had to listen to what they were telling the white students. But so far them taking their time to ask us so you understood what I was saying. No, it wasn't like any of that. You know, and, and that's what we, I mean, it was like separation within the classroom. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and if you come into class late, you were sent, you understand, you were sent to the principal's office, or you became a problem, or you were suspended. I never, I didn't know what suspension were until I went to an integrated school. Damn. You know, so you had to go through all of that. But those are things that children, uh, 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 you can say as children you go through, but it really don't factor in. You know something is wrong, but you can't put, put things into perspective. You know you're different because <laughs> they make you feel different. But you never, in a sense of, saying that is hate mm -hmm. because as a child you really don't know what hate is we have to be taught yeah uh, yes so uh but you know we 
went through all of that. So, uh, but when I came back to Louisiana, it was like a no, no. It's that I spoke out against things that I didn't like, and, <laughs> and you know, to to learn the word, you know, coming out in L.A. and because back then, you know, police was looked at as the pigs. You understand? Uh, the fuzz. And going back with that kind of language, calling the police in the South a pig and all of that, oh, no, I wasn't, no, no. Where you been at, boy? Where you, where you come from? You're not, you're not from this neighborhood. You talking back to the police? You talking back to white folks? Uh-uh, something's wrong with you. Then you become mocked. You become a problem. So nothing you do in the eyesight is good. So, uh, and I guess that's what happened with me. Did your parents talk to you about, you know, encourage you to use your voice now that you had one? Or did they think, oh God, there's gonna, something, something bad well, is going to happen? Well, my parents was hardworking people. My mother and my father worked. All right, my father worked three jobs, and that's no exaggeration. Sometimes he worked a fourth job. My father did all kind of work to support his family. And, uh, and my mother was a housekeeper. She took care of other family children. You understand? Other white family children. She did that. Not to say that they neglected their children, because they didn't, because they provide for us. They made sure that we had three meals a day, they, uh, that we were clothing, you know, there was clothes, and all of that. You understand? They, you know, they, they took their time whenever they had time, but mainly my father was the one that, that was kind of like absent he was dead, but he was like absent. He didn't. He wasn't able to spend that quality time like mom's was within the family. Mm-hmm. All right. And of course, you know when when something happened, you know they wanted to know what's you know what's going on, but they understood that to be careful what you say and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know when you when you become a teenager. You become emboldened. And you love your parents, you love your, you know, the, the adults, about them trying to be mindful, trying to help you. But you are a state of mind that they don't understand what's going on. You don't know what I'm experiencing. And you tend to go against that. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't understand. And you're going to address days your way. So that's how it all became. Yeah. Let's talk about October 7th. Something that had been brewing at that school. There's something that just instantaneously popped up. Sure. All right, we're talking about something that historically had been, take, that been taking place in that area and at, at that school in particular for years. Ever, ever since they, uh, when they mentioned about integrating the schools, it was flagged back then. And when they finally went to integrate the schools and they had uh, closed down local black schools and, and, and bought, bust the black schools, skimming the black students into the white neighborhood that was flare, you know, flare up in the white neighborhood where family, you know, parents protested because the, the schools was right there in their community. Yeah. So they, I mean, they, they protested and, and everything else and and when uh, when it was a fight, they came out. 
like ready, like like uh, you know, like like a lynch mob. You understand? Ready to quite ready literally, to, yeah, I'm sure. Quite literally, yeah. I mean, with bats, guns, and shovels and holes, anything that they feel over there is to you know, they say to protect their community or their child at that school. And it wasn't like it wasn't like that. Two kids getting into a fist fight. But it, to them, it was more than them. Y'all trying to take over our school. And, you know, and, and it's sad that you got adults directing their anger at children. Mm-hmm. So that's what, it, that's what it basically was. So it's just that I got caught up in, in things like that during the integration of uh, during high school itself. So there was, you know, there was fights or uh, unfair treatment of black students by, uh, by the teachers. And... Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, just one of those things that eventually, you know, exploded mm-hmm. until at this particular day, uh, what October, October the fourth, I was on a Friday, if I'm not mistaken, at a football game where a big fight took place at the football game between blacks and whites. At the football game, and uh, a rumor was during the week, during the weekend, that you know that we're gonna be, you know, standing, uh, 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 that it's gonna be a continuation of what happened that Friday, that Friday night, and and something. I mean, you know, kids had basically got used to that kind of thing, you know, fighting with each other and stuff like that. And you're 16 at this point. Yeah, I'm six. I just made 16. I just made 16 in July. And uh, I went to school. I mean, like always, get up in the morning, get dressed, you know, uh, eat and get my books and catch the bus and go to school. And when I got off the bus, you know, like always, when when uh, before uh, before they rang the bell, you understand? They, you know, everybody, everybody go. They go to the little corner where they hang out and stuff like that. And I was just one of those so kids. I mean, just okay. I mean, that that wasn't even on my mind about what happened Friday with the rumor that was going on the weekend and stuff like that. To me, it was just gonna be a typical old day. If there are fights, there are fights. If it's not, it's not. You understand? And uh, so when I got off the school bus, I was headed toward the back, like always, behind the gym where kids take and gather and stuff like that, just to be, you know, hanging out. And uh, and as I said, when I wasn't on school ground probably no more than five to ten minutes when I heard my name over the intercom, that me and another student, uh, they report to the principal office. And I knew what it was all about. I knew what it was all about. It was about... There was, a, there was a woman by the name of uh, Nancy Lemoyne. She was a social worker, a white, you know, white lady social worker. And she was, you know, it was her aim to bring the black and white students together, bring some type of harmony with the kids and everything. And she was a loving, caring woman. As a matter of fact, she was the one that brought me, my cousin, and all them dad to the, to the football game. And she made sure when that, when, that, when that fight started and everything, that she had all of us back and she brought us back home. So we weren't even a part of the conflict that Friday night. 
but she had created a little a, a little group where black and white students can air their you know their concerns and stuff like that. And of course, I was a part of it. And I you know I spoke of things that many felt that I should have been hushed about it. I shouldn't have spoke about the unfair treatment of black students. That when, if they diss school, at least play hooky from school, that uh, if they out there on the school grounds, out there in the football area, baseball area, just hanging out as uh, addition, uh, uh, you could say, ditching classes, mm -hmm. that the principal will go out there and tell him to go to his office, but white students tell him to go back to class. So all of that stuff like that, I'm, I'm witnessing all of this. Matter of fact, being a part of it, you understand, dissing, you know, classes, but we got the, you know, we got the heavy hand mm -hmm. opposed to white students. So I brought a lot of this stuff up. <laughs> you can say, in, look, the grievances that we had. And, uh, and of course, you had the, the principal and assistant principal there. And... I, I guess I made them the target of my attack by accusing them because, I mean, they, they were basically the ones that was going out there and doing a lot of this stuff. And I accused them of, I accused them of favoritism, you know, racism, all of that. And, uh, of course, they didn't like it, of course. But I knew that I had, you know, we was in a setting where we was airing our grievances. So, uh, but this particular day when I, when my name was called, I knew it was, I was being targeted. They was going to get me. And John Lee, he was, like I said, he was also one of the students that was part of the, part of the group too. So, uh, like when I was, so I got my stuff. I headed to the principal's office. The assistant principal stopped and said, Gary, they called me at the principal's office. I'm on my way. Miss Lamont saw me. Said, "What they calling you for? Where you going? What you did?" I said, "I didn't do anything." All right, she said, "Go see what they want." So I went to the principal's office. Soon as I walked in, uh, this guy, the student, he was walking out, asking, you know. Uh, having words with the principal and the principal told him he was suspended and so the guy you know left so as he turned he saw me and he told me to come in his office as I went in his office he told me that I was being suspended because the teachers reported that I was causing trouble in the classroom and that I never show up for class. So when he said that, my response was, how is it that I'm causing trouble in the classroom if I never show up? <laughs> good answer. It's <laughs> a very good <laughs> so, so, But I knew it was a case that he was billing on me. He was just bogusly, you know, doing a rap on me just to say he suspended me from class. So I asked him, I said, you suspended me? Like I said, what teacher was it? Don't worry about it. You suspended. So I told him, I said, okay. I said, you're going to give me a suspension load.
He said, yeah. So he told one of the secretaries to, to give me a suspension note. So I got the suspension note and gathered my stuff and got on the river road. Me and, um, well, first we did, when we got on the river road, they had students on the levee. <laughs> so we went up on the levee. And at that time, that river was crested when the water was high up the Mississippi. So, uh, you know, standing up there in the kind of mud, I told him, I said, Look, I'm, I'm finna go up, so I've been suspended, I'm leaving. So, you, uh, me and the guy, we got on the river road and we hitchhiked. We hitchhiked all the way back to Preston Hollow. Arrived back in Preston Hollow, there was some uh, guys that we know in the community. They were in front of the place. So we stopped there and they had this police officer Joe Giglio, I'll never forget that name. Joe Giglio. He was like a truant officer. He had two young kids, these two young boys that he had picked up for truancy. One named Booby, and the other name was uh, Slurch. He stopped, and we saw him. He got out of his car, and he walked up there, and, uh, and he was asking, he asked one, he asked the guy, uh, Calvin Taylor, he said, uh, what you doing out of school? Kevin Taylor said, uh, I'm 18 years old. He said, I don't go to school. So he turned, he turned to me. He said, what you doing out of school? I said, I've been suspended. I got a slip here. You understand? And he told me, he said, come here. I said, no, I'm not coming to you. He said, come here. I said, no. He was trying to, he was trying to arrest me. Because I saw he had the other two students. He was trying to arrest me. So he turned to John Smith. John, I mean, excuse me, the other guy named John Lee. John Lee took him and left. So the guy, the police officer, Joe Jiglio, he was trying to coach me. Come here. So he started putting his hand on the gun. And I, you know, went to mocking him. I'm a kid. I'm a young kid. You know. Went to mocking him and everything. And he, and, he, and, you understand, he looked at me. He just, and he shook his head. And I walked on off. As I was headed home, I dropped by uh, my cousin's uh, uh, girlfriend's house where he was there painting the house. I stood, I was there for a while, then I went home. When I went home, there was uh, Eric Smith. Guy just got a job at Grand, uh, uh, Bunga Grand Elevator. And my parents had let him stay at our house because we had room. And, uh, and he had asked me to come with him to New Salt Peep to get some clothes because he got the job. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I was kind of reluctant, but you know, I mean, he was my friend and I said, okay, so we, I, I left the house with him. We got on the river road and we hitchhiked to New Salt Peep. Got clothes, you understand, bags of clothes. We got on the river road and we hitchhiked, was hitchhiking back to Preston Hollow where I come from. And a school teacher that was a PE teacher at a New Salt Pete Elementary Middle School stopped and told us, said, the farthest he was gone was a red and white store. I said, okay. So we, we got in the vehicle and he dropped us off at the red and white store. And we got back on the river road to hitchhike. And this unmarked cruiser, police cruiser, pulled up. It was two, uh, two police officers, both of them that we knew, one V.J. St. Pierre. V.J. St. Pierre was notorious, known for harassing black kids in the community. He was a uh, former Vietnam a veteran. 
he got wounded real badly in the war. And uh, real, I mean, real racist, all right? He jumped out, he said, so he, he told us, where y'all going? So uh, U.S. Smith told him, said, uh, we just come from my mother's house when to get some clothes because of the job I got. He looked at me, he, he knew me because he had, he had arrested me uh, some, some months ago. Foolishness, all right? So uh, he asked me, what you doing out of class? I said, he said, what you doing? I said, I just got suspended. I said, here's my suspension note. He told us to get in this car. And we get in the car, he patted us down, went through the guy's bag, patted me down, patted the guy down, and everything went to questioning us. And, and as we went to school, we drove on the school campus, they saw the vice principal, the assistant principal, and asked him, well, really, well, we the guys that they called in. And the guy looked and he said, oh, no, he said, Gary Tyler was suspended this morning. You understand? And he don't need to be on he don't need to be on the school grounds. So the, the police officer, he just said Pierre turned us and told us to get the effing out of his car. On the school grounds. And I asked him, I said, You're not gonna give us a ride back to St. Rose? He cursed us out, told him, get out of his car. So we got out of his car on the school grounds and the buses and everything was coming. And uh and you asked me when I went to debating. Should we go back out there on the uh, on the river road to hitchhike? To go back to you know back to St. Rose, or should we catch one of the catch the bus that gone to the community? Cause we saw that the buses was coming in, so it was evident that okay, school was they would let the school out, all right. But we didn't know at that time that the ride had took place. Cause the ride started started after we left. Me and uh, me and the guy John Lee left the school. Were the riots taking place at the school or just in the neighborhood? No, it was it was taking place at the school. Okay. See, it took it, it happened after we had left. Okay. We had got suspended that morning. Yeah. And uh, when you and Smith and I we were brought to the back to the school, mm. there was a portion of the area that we didn't see on the other side that there was a big that there was a you know big fight and I mean a whole buku of people out there. You understand? Mm -hmm. That we didn't know what the school, what the buses was being called for. We kind of like oblivious to all that stuff here, because they didn't bring us in the heart of the school. Right. So, uh, but we saw buses coming. So we figured, okay, they probably gonna, you know, letting school out. You understand? I mean, of course, remember the rumor for the weekend and all that stuff. That's they probably called us because they got, you know, having a little tension at school, so they probably gonna let school out. So we debated whether we should hitchhike. Back to Preston Hollow, or should we try to catch one of the school buses that going back? And you understand, you would say, well, my little brother's at school, you know, he at school, and I don't want him to get, you know, get caught up in anything. So I said, okay, I said, well, I got my brother. I said, I got my cousins. So we decided, we decided to go and look for him. When we went deeper into the school area, that's when we saw, you know, casualty of the ride, you know, of the ride itself. And one, one, young, one young student, female, that I knew, I'd never forget it, Karen Lee boy, they was toting up because uh, a white kid took and threw, uh, I believe it was a bottle or a brick or something, and it smashed in the head and they had a bleeding real, real bad. So uh, as we made our way, we made our way to the, uh, to the gym. And that's where, that's where they had all the black kids masked in front of the gym. And they was loading them on the bus, all right? 
They were just getting kids, putting them on buses that didn't even go to their neighborhood. And so uh, when we got when we got to the uh, to the gym, that's when you understand. I saw my brother, you saw his brother and everything, and you ran up there and helped this brother get on the bus. That bus that was going was going to New South Peak. So when another bus came up. That's when they ushered him, me, and a whole lot of other students on that bus. But as you can see, we see the buses leaving, and every bus that was passing through, there was under attack. They had to go through like a, a pallywhack of, I mean, of just hundreds, you know, hundreds of people just white people. there. Yes, because yeah. we were right in the middle of a white neighborhood. That's where the school was at. Yeah. And every bus that bus that went down down. Destrahan Road came under attack. So we knew that we go that way, we're gonna come under attack too. So sure enough, <laughs> when they loaded us on the bus and we start going on there, then it yeah, that's when the bus came under attack with all with rocks, bricks, whatever it is that they threw. And as we went on, that's when we heard a pop sound. Pop. And of course. When that happened, people on the bus panicked, and that's what we hear about. They shooting at white boys shooting at us. And that's when the kids on kids in the bus, they start rushing to the front of the bus. And uh, was it all black kids on the bus? Yeah, all black kids on the bus. So rushing to the front of the bus. The bus driver, Ernest Kojo, he was auxiliary deputy for St. Charles Parish. He stopped. You understand? They saw the kids rushing and everything, and uh, and you know, standing he and he and he stepped off the bus. That's when the police came and told him to get back on the bus. So he got back on the bus and he drove it on uh, on on the next street, and that's when the police came and everything, and and the police came on the bus and stood there and. And had each and other, each and every one of us come off the bus while they, while they searched us down, and uh. Because somebody had been shot. Somebody had been shot, all right. More specifically, and, uh, a white kid had been shot. Well, we didn't know. But you didn't know that yet. No, we didn't know. Right. Didn't know. So. But that's um, why they're. That's why they were at the bus, getting you all off of the bus. Yeah, they put. Yeah, so uh, as we getting off the bus. The guy come to, you know, I get off the bus, the police shake me down and everything and and you know and and uh and told you know because where they where the, where the bus was parked, it was parked on the streets, but across the ditch they had a vacant parking lot, a big pep, big uh, parking lot. And they told us to, you know, jump the ditch to get in the parking lot. So after they finished shaking me down, I jumped the ditch, got in the parking lot, and I was standing at there, my cousin came off. All right, patted him down, and the moment I turned my head and looked around, I had the police pull him aside. And that's when I asked him, what's going on, what's wrong? That's when he told me, said, they arrested me from having this. He had a 22 bullet around his neck with a chain on it. And the police was arresting him for that. And I told him, I said, that's not illegal. I said, why he didn't tell me about the one that I had right here? I said, it's not illegal. You can't arrest him for that. Then the police told me to come back across the ditch. So as I proceeded to jump across the ditch, <laughs> that's when a police drew his gun on me. 
And man, them started having words. Then that's when another police came in. That's when another police came in. You understand? Yeah. And I'm trying to tell him that. The officer told me to come back across the ditch, cuz. You understand? Because I had this on. You understand? I had this gun. He was arresting my cousin for. Meanwhile, they haven't found the gun at all. There is no gun. No. This long black police officer named Nelson Coleman. I never forget this. Because many people don't know how I got arrested. I was arrested by a black officer. He came, and I saw him. He had a, he had a, I don't know if it was a shotgun or a rifle. He gave his rifle, whatever it was, to a state police officer. And he walked up to me, and he asked me, he said, son, what's your problem? And my response was to him that I was, you know, that I had a father and that I don't have no problem. And his response back to me was, son, you are arrested for disturbing my peace and interfering with police officers, dude. That's what I got arrested for. Shit. And he got me, little, I mean, I was a little kid. He got me, grabbed me by the, I'll stand by the back of my pants. He was a tall guy, too tall black guy, older guy. He, was, he had to have been in his, uh, his 60s back then. Grabbed me by the, you know, grabbing my back pants and kind of when he, when he pulled, kind of like lift me up. And he started marching me through the white crowd to his vehicle. And, that, and that's when the crowd engulfed on us. And this guy panicked. Now the police had to come and break the crowd up. He put me in his vehicle. I'm sitting in the vehicle. <coughs> A white kid that was in tennis class with me, he came, you understand? And he asked the police officer what I was arrested for. The police said, well, I don't know. I don't know what he was arrested, you know, what, what, what they arrested him for. So he left. And then a student came outside the building, out of the hallway. Her name was Karen Moore. And she said, Gary, she said, you didn't shoot the gun out, out the bus to kill the white kid, huh? I said, what? She said, yeah. She said, uh, there was a white kid. I said, no. That's the first time I heard about somebody that was shot. First time. Did you start immediately panicking, I'm sure? Well, I knew I was what I was arrested for. <laughs> I was I knew I what I was arrested for. You were arrested for lipping off to the to the cop, but he's Yeah, yeah. but I <laughs> <laughs> I, I see, but you know, hey, that's what I was arrested for. So, so we was there for for a couple more hours, and that's when they got uh, they got everybody together, put them back on the bus. They took off. Then another, then the police officer came, cause the other police officer who was watching the vehicle, he had left. He was called off. So I'm in the cover myself, so another officer came, he got in the vehicle, and drove me all the way to the uh, substation in New Salt Peak. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting on the side of the road, and uh, now I got, it was, it was, uh, it was hot, real hot in the vehicle, so I'm soaking wet. I start taking my top clothes off and everything. The only thing I got is a, a body shirt, a parish silk shirt on, 
and I got my pants on. Everything else was soaking wet. Hat and everything was soaking wet. And uh, and uh, lady that lived in the community, she saw me in the car. She asked, I said, would you call my mother? So she went across the street. A white family let, my, uh, let her use the phone. She went to call my mother and everything. And my mother came. And, uh, and Nelson Coleman was there. She said, well, what about my son? He said, Miss, she said, when you, uh, whenever you can, you need to talk to your son. You understand? He, uh, he lipping me. You know, some, you know, yeah, your son, your son don't know, you know, he's, he's been well, you know, ill-mannered. So she said, okay. She said, but when I'm going to get my son? He said, we're going to, you know, he said, just hold up right now. Everybody being checked out. So, so, uh. I asked my mother, I was soaking wet, and uh, she could see me in that. So I asked him, I said, uh, excuse me, I said, can I get my mother my clothes? He said, yeah, he opened the door. I could get my mother my hat, my gloves, my, uh, my shirt, and everything, because it was soaking wet for me being in there. So uh, she got it, and uh, she waited, like everybody else, and they started bringing the kids in, and bringing the kids out, then they came in. While I was sitting there, that's when they put uh, uh, another student in the car with me. He was arrested for calling the same officer that arrested me, and Uncle Tom. <laughs> and, uh, Uncle Tom. Uncle Tom. Yeah. And the guy, Eric Smith, he was arrested for calling the police Uncle Tom, too. So they arrested both of them, so... When they finally came and got, got the guy there, they came and got me, they brought us in the room. You and Smith there, and I'm here. And uh, and they talking, they, they booking you and Smith. Then when the guy got to me, I gave him my name. I told him how old he was, and he stopped. And he got upset with me, went to curse him out about why I didn't effing tell him that I was a juvenile. I said, you never asked me. You know, and he stopped, and uh, in the process of him sitting there cursing me out, calling me all kind of name, that's when V.J. St. Pierre walked in, and he saw me. The racist cop. Yeah. He saw me, and he saw Eric Smith. You understand? I guess cop told me yeah, that we was on the bus. And he was asking us why, you know, why we was on the bus, what happened on the bus. So I told him, I said, I don't know what you're talking about, you know. He didn't want, he felt because we was on the bus, we knew something that was on the bus. So uh, he started, he started hitting on me. Beating you up. Oh yeah, he started beating me up, started beating me up in there. And uh, you and Smith was right there, terrified what was going on. And uh, and that's when the officer, P.J. St. Pierre asked, uh, give me something to beat this black mother effing. I said, I'm going to find out who killed my cousin. Oh, and, uh, and that's when <laughs> Nelson Coleman told him, said, only thing I got is a flapjack. I don't know what that is. Flapjack is a small, small billy with, uh, I guess, with lead in the front of it. And it's a little, it's, it's like a little, it's just, it's like leather that's being wrapped around lead at the front of it. It's called a flapjack. Okay. He said, that's all I got is a flapjack. He said, get that to me. And this guy went to just wailing on me, beat me and everything, trying to find out what's, you know, what's going on. Your 16-year-old child being beat and, uh, to a pulp by a grown man. Yep. 
And another officer came in and he started to beat me. And the officer that saw me earlier and Preston Hollow, mm -hmm. uh, 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 Joe Giglio, he came in there and he told him, he said, we got people out there they can hear what's going on in here. Including your mom? See, my mother, yeah, all, they had mothers out there. They was petrified because they didn't know was that their child in there, whatever, all right? So, uh, so he stopped and they grabbed me. I was a little, I mean, little kid, man. They grabbed me and, they, and then it was wrestling me, bringing me in the back and we had to go through the lobby. And that's when my mother saw me. Back then I was bleeding and everything. I mean, it, it, it busted, I had my head bleeding, bust across my eye and everything. And so it was going through. That's when my mother said, Mr. Mr. Please, can I talk to you? You understand? Please. And a man, and, and uh, V.J. St. Pierre said, I don't want to hear nothing you or anyone have to say until I find out who killed my cousin. She said, Mr. Please, can I talk to you? And he ignored my mother and pulled me in the back. And that's when him and several, several more officers, they brought me back then they went to, they went to beating me. I mean, they beat the hell out of me. I'm so sorry. So afterwards, my mother and father came. My mother came in and my mother screamed. You understand? I mean, I was a bloody mess back in the, in the back back then. Yep. And later, they locked me up in the uh, in a holding cell, and I fell asleep. And the next morning, they come in there and and they transported me to uh, cross the river. Yep, and I don't know what's happening. None of them told me that I was charged with murder or anything. There's no rights being given, no nothing. Nothing, nah, no rights, nothing. I mean, they tra so they transported me across the river and uh, they put me in a jail. And then that's when a prisoner in the cell next to me, no, two cells for me named Bertrand. He said, hey, hey, come. Hey, hey, young fella. I said, yeah, what's up? He said, your name Gary? I said, yeah. He said, they talking about you on the news. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, man, they charged you with murder. They just stuck it on you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even when they was trying, when they were beating me, they were trying to get me to... So they were trying to give me to, to sign false confessions. I refused. They was asking me who I think could have done something like that on the bus. I told them, I don't know. I don't know anyone capability. You understand? No, I mean, they were telling me, I called me all kind of N-words, telling me I was being uncooperative and they're going to they gonna find out and they're going to get out of me. Nothing. But and the reality was somebody in that crowd fired the gun and killed a white kid and they needed the scapegoat. And... But the thing, I mean, you would have to really read the story itself. It, they, 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 they tore the bus up, you understand, on the site. And they didn't find anything. 
Then later they bought the bus, transported the bus to the substation. And then a few hours later, they come up with a seat. The seat that I conveniently was sitting in, saying that this is the uh, uh, this is the seat that uh that Gary Tyler was sitting in that we found the gun in. But they showed the seat. You can see the imprint of a gun. If that's the case, why didn't you see that imprint of the gun right. from the beginning? Well, not only that, but the bus driver who had law enforcement training yeah, also he, did. He helped him yeah. shake the bus down and everything. So he, he showed them how to take to the know. seats out of the bus, yeah. turn the seats over, all of that. I mean, he testified yeah. in my behalf. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And the, the gun turned out to be stolen from a, a range, a police gun range. turned out to be reported from a police fire range yeah. that St. Charles Parish police officers use. Yeah. So from another parish. So how a 16-year-old kid gonna get hold to a, to a 45 automatic? Yeah. And the girl who was in the seat with me testified that she saw me with a gun. They asked how the gun looked. Well, it was a small gun with a, uh, like a cylinder to it. Like a hump in it, you understand? Know, the gun, so it had to be still a revolver. But they had a forty-five automatic. Well, and they got they got people probably from the same way. They beat them and coerced them into giving yeah. false witness. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, they threatened them. To come. Also, they got children, them. right? Yeah, they was they was thirteen years old. Uh, uh, Loretta London was thirteen. Natalie Blanks was thirteen too. Yeah. You know, so you know that's. That's what happened. So when they when they transported me, uh, and when that guy told me that, that went out me. It's like I kind of like freaked out. Understandably. You know, and and I'm thinking, you know, okay, all right, but no, I've been arrested for disturbing the peace. <laughs> all right, you better come to reality. They got you for murder. <laughs> Yep, they got you for murder. And in this bullshit trial, it took less than a year to convict you. Yeah. So, yeah. Did they allow you to see your parents at all during this time? Well, they, what, what happened, but I was so physically, you know, bruised up and everything. All the ones they allowed to visit me was my parents. Everybody else wasn't able to visit me until almost a month later. After I healed up and stuff like that. But my mother and father was able to come visit me. Oh, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Yeah. They kept me separated from everybody for over a month. 16 kept... years old. Yeah. Did you see, did you, well, you were assigned a lawyer that was not uh, good. Somebody, or uh, your parents hired a lawyer that my, had my no parents, experience. Yes. My parents hired a lawyer, Jack Williams, who didn't have no trial experience in criminal cases or capital cases and found out he was a divorce attorney. Only visit me, what, three times? I believe three times he visited me. I must have went in a whole year. Kept telling me, don't worry about anything. You understand, they're gonna drop the charges against you. 
had me believing in that. I mean, you know, I mean, I was, I was, I was raised up believing that the criminal justice system was right, that they're gonna take and find me innocent. Not for black people, it's not. <laughs> I didn't know anything like that. It still isn't. Believe me, I didn't know anything about that. All right. I didn't know anything about that, and, and, and sure enough, I believed in the criminal justice system, and, and the same criminal justice system I believed in. White judge. F me up. Yeah, white judge and white jury, right? Yeah, white judge, white jury, white prosecutor. When I got on the witness stand to testify to give my side of the story, they would not let me. They kept, the uh, DA kept objecting. Yeah, I couldn't. They tell me it was hearsay, hearsay. Your own side of the story was hearsay. Yeah, my side of the story was hearsay. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm a kid. As a child, you, I mean, you know, young person, you recall everything that's around you. That's how fresh your mind is. And I was just, I was just telling them everything that's around me was was taking place. They didn't want to hear all of that. I was telling them about what I saw, what I heard other people say, and what they saw. They, what they say all that was hearsay. Yeah. So you're convicted of... I'm convicted of first-degree murder, all right, and automatically was given the death penalty. Fuck. And... How do you even wrap your head around something like that when, when they... It was you? surreal. I mean, it was... You couldn't believe it. Mm-mm. You couldn't believe it. I'm okay. telling you, it was... It was something that I didn't know... You understand? There were times where... I thought I was going to wake up and wake up at home. Yeah. But no. I woke up in that cold cell until the day they tried me and had people that I knew went to school with me that I, that I called my friends, got on that witness stand and lied on me. And I had to deal with that for a very long time. Even in the courtroom, there was... When they was on the witness stand lying on me and everything, I would turn it to my attorney, tell them they lying. They lying. I mean, that's, I mean, how else I supposed to act? They lying. They were not even sitting in the seat with me. Two girls said that they were sitting in the seat with me. I'm sitting in the seat with two guys, Larry Daphne and Micah Campbell. Yeah. Larry Daphne and Micah Campbell. They got two girls say that. They were sitting to see with me, not together. That it was just only two of us in the seat. So they took you off to Angola. Yeah. One of the worst prisons in the United States. Mm -hmm. And when they came and got me that day, that night, it was early in the morning. Carl. They came and got me. A guy named Robert Jasmine. I heard that when they was coming to get Robert Jasmine. When they told him about he got to pack, pack, you know, get your stuff. And St. Saint Charles have a, nor a notorious past. And, uh, and you hear all kinds of stories about what they did in that parish and everything. That morning there, I thought they would come to get me to kill me and throw me in the Mississippi River. This guy is evident. What I, what I heard everything about, 
about St. Charles Parish, this guy must have felt the same way. This guy was crying and begging and everything else. Yeah, he was crying and big, and I was petrified because I, I felt that this was gonna be, you know, there was it. Yeah. So they, they brought me downstairs, and and you know what's so odd about it? Never during that time did they have me in handcuffs. Yeah. Because they knew you didn't do it. They didn't put the handcuffs on me until we got a quarter of a mile from the prison. And you know what the guy told me? Well, you know, we're going to prison, so we can't, we can't bring you in there unhandcuffed because, uh, you know, it's a prison. They put the handcuffs on me. They put them in front of me. They, and they, they, that's when we were back. Uh, they brought me the rest of the way to the prison. But during that time there, when they came and got us and everything, I was not handcuffed. I mean... My thing was that, as a kid, you know, you're frightened, you know, you do something of doing anything, not really factoring or taking into consideration of what's going on around you. What if I would have just took and broke out and run? Would that give them justification to shoot and kill me? Here's a kid just got found guilty of first degree murder, given the death penalty, and now he trying to escape. The same thing when they had brought me in that back room and they beat it, they beat me and left me in that room for about 15 minutes. All right? And on that table that they in the room they had me on, guess what they had there? They had a gun. They wanted you to do what something. What they expected me to grab that gun? Yeah. Put, grab that gun and put my fingerprint on that gun? Or what they expected me to jump out that window to try to escape? And you know what? The feeling that I had, it was something because they come busting in that room. When, I, when they brought me to that back room, they, beat, they came busting in that room about 15 minutes later. So why did they come busting in that room? Yeah. Yeah. You were the youngest person yeah. to ever be sentenced to death mm -hmm. in the country. And then you, were, you were put in death row. When you enter a prison, which, again, just I, can't, I cannot even wrap my head around. You're 16 years old and you're walking into this situation. It must, your, uh, your getting there must have preceded you. I imagine that other people that were incarcerated knew you were coming. Yes, because of the news. Yeah. I don't think that they, only person that probably knew that I was coming at the time, it's uh, the prison administrators and the guards that they told, because uh, probably told them that they're going to be transporting this young know, Stan Garrett Tyler to prison, all right? Uh, but the prison prison population itself, they knew about uh, about my case because of the news. Yeah. Because they, they reported all in the newspaper and also on, on television. So when I... When they brought me to Angola, and they processed me, and they uh, they put me on the they put me on the, on the tail called uh, I mean on cells tail C, and I was in cell seven.
When he brought me to that tail, now this is the shortest tail in the in the cell block. Because they got what? They got 12, 12, 12, 13 tail and cells on that tail. Did that tail, when I saw that tail, it was like it was so long. Mm. Like there was no end to it. And when the tail itself, they had this big old iron door that they closed and locked. So when they opened that door, prisoners could hear it. They could hear the keys. And you had these little objects flashing out of the cells. And I didn't know what the hell that was. What it was is that prisoners either had toothbrushes or pencils where broken mirrors, they fastened it to the, to the end of it with gum where they could look with a little people called peoples, where they looked down the tail see who's coming. What the, you know, in my mind, what is that? Well, that's how the guy was trying to see what was going, who was coming on the tail. So when they, uh, when they brought me down to the cell, I'm passing by and I see these guys. As I'm, as I'm passing by, I'm seeing these guys in the cell. And they stop at cell seven, racked the door back, and I went in the cell, and they closed the door, and they took the shackles off me and the, and the handcuffs off me. Yep, and being there, guys start coming out one at a time, introducing themselves. Who they were and everything. Yeah, they don't heard about me, so I guess they may, may put one and one and two together. This got to be the guy. Look how young this guy is. I was man, I was a little guy, probably weigh no more than um, probably about a hundred pounds, one hundred and ten pounds like that. Yeah. And then after what? After so many hours, what? Uh, car? How many? When was I when I mean I was wow. It had to been cop for you know one you know, one night set there fighting sleeping trying to fathom about what's going on here and, and all this stuff here and, and land in the bed. And every day you can hear you you can hear the you can hear the prison guard walking way on the other side of the building on the tip because that's how it echoed everything. And uh, you can hear him walking, you can hear the keys, rattling of the keys. If a prisoner racked the doors, you can hear the doors racking, like it's shaking the whole building. And uh, I'm laying in the bed and it's late. Next thing you know, you hear this scream. This scream, I was so so terrifying. Until where it, it you know, it wakes you up. You already have sleep slumber. It just wakes you completely up. And I jump up to you know, because it seemed like it sounded like it was right there on the tail where I was at. And I'm, you know, and, 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 and I'm about to tell them, and I'm got my little people, now I got a little people, and I'm looking, seeing what's happening, and all of a sudden, 
I see this glow. I'm downstairs on cell C, on, on uh, tail C. I see this big old fiery glow upstairs coming from, uh, from cell B. And next day you know it's, it's go back. It's come back, it's go back. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell is this? This is a guy who's engulfed in flames that another prisoner got gasoline and threw gasoline on him and set him afire. Jesus. Yep, set him afire. And this guy screaming for mercy. I mean, he was, yep. And later I found out that the guy who was uh, who who know who who was set a fire named Grady Bull, who died what a few years ago. Mm. He lucky that the, it, it you know he didn't die from it. Yep, he was engulfed in flames. That must have been absolutely terrifying. Yeah, so I got to know him, and I got to know the guy that set him a fire named Joe Chase. Yeah, they were they were what you would call mortal enemies. Yeah. What did you do to while the time in the beginning? Did people step in right away to protect you? Yes. Did, did that happen immediately? I would say yes. I would. Because for them, I imagine uh, they must. They must have thought, what the hell is this kid doing here? And that's, and that's how they thought. Yeah. And mind you, I'm with guys on the tier that was, that was on the tier for killing other prisoners, have raped other prisoners, that, uh, that security officers was petrified of, Felt they were, you know, incorrigible. These guys was too dangerous to be let out of the main prison population. Guys who who was brutal at beating other prisoners and and also attacked, you know, guards. I'm among all these guys. Even though you had some guys, they were, you know, I mean, they they wasn't, you know, they weren't violent, but they were in there for the day because security felt that these guys wasn't trustworthy to be released back out there in main prison population. So I'm with these guys and these guys, I mean, I tell people it's like, I learned a lot from these guys. These guys immediately became my protectors. These guys were the ones that made it humanly possible for me to survive in the cell. We're talking about guys who were literally at, at war with each other on a tier, made a pact that they were going to protect me. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, why? I tell people, I, I, you know, 
I think I got a, a, a grasp on why they did it. It's because no matter what a person is in prison for, there's always a sense of humanity that's still within them. And I feel though that when they saw me, they didn't, they didn't see me as a threat. They didn't see me as somebody that, oh yeah, I gotta watch him because uh, he, uh, he may do this to me, or he may do that. When they saw me, they, you remember some of these guys was, I mean, old enough to be my fathers, more so old enough to be my brothers. So these guys saw me as, as you know, as, as their son, as their little brother, their nephew, you understand? Neighbor's child. They saw me that, wow, this is what they're doing to our children. Now they're sending our children to prison at this age. That could be my son. And as men, they stepped up. And I can say that <clears throat> they gave me the best of themselves. When I try to do something, get out of line, they always put me back in check. Because they told me that this wasn't my world. Because what they do, they do it because they have to do it. Understand? That this wasn't my world. So it wasn't for me to act like they do. And they used to always tell me, do as I say, not as I do. Wow. Yeah? And they was telling me that don't get caught up in prison life. I mean, you're not a criminal. This is not your life. You can lose yourself in here. In which case they were right. They got a lot of, you know, a lot of men that come to prison and they get caught up until the part to no return. And they head that off. Yeah. So it's a thing where they protected me. They gave me the best of themselves. And never once did they ask of anything from me. And when um and after almost 10 years being in the cells and <coughs> getting out, they're the one that, they the one that really encouraged me to leave the cells. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave because these guys was my family now. What do you mean by leave? What do you mean? Well, you know, every, every, you know, six months, well, every 90 days to six months, they have a, a, a they have an annual review board after a year. And every and they have a 90 day board, and sometimes, yeah. And the, the board is that classification whether they're going to classify you to another part of the prison, you understand, stuff like that. But after almost, you know, being in there for, for so many years, they came to me, and I mean, what I was there for, I was, I, they took me off a of debt row and they put me in CCR, maximum security. Right, because Louisiana made the. Death yeah, doing standard assault Robinson, yes, it was yeah. unconstitutional. Right. Not to mention how old you were. Yes. So they, uh, instead of letting me out of the cells into the main prison population, they kept me in maximum security. And I stayed there all, all, you know, all the way until, uh, well, it was uh, until 80, what, it was 
85. I stayed in the cells all the way to 85. So you were being, this was your family, you were being protected, you didn't want to go in. Yeah. Were mom, you able to say, look, these are the people I want to be with? Oh, yes. If I didn't want to go, I mean, it was, it became my choice. At least they wanted okay. to make it my choice. Because people was wondering, why are you keeping this guy in the cells? What did he do to stay in the cells? But it was all you'd ever known once you got there. You know? Yes. But it's the damn way. Their excuse was original reason for lockdown. Original reason for lockdown. What the original reason for lockdown was that I was on death row. That's the reason. But there were people that was inquiring about why this guy Garrett Tyler still uh, still in maximum security. He's not on death row. He don't have a bad prison record. Why you constantly keep this guy locked down? So I guess they wanted to, you know, try to show, well, uh, you know, we gave this guy a chance. And, uh, you know, to, to let out, to let him out. He didn't want to leave. So, uh, and it was right. I mean, it got to the point that that's where all my friends was at. Your family. My family. We're talking about guys that became not only my surrogate fathers, but also my uncles, my big brothers, and all that stuff that we grew up with each other. Mm-hmm. You understand? And uh, so when... So when this time came, and uh, in '84, to be released, general population, I had my reservations. All right, and uh, and they told me, "Say, well, we'll be back in uh, in two weeks, and we we'll just give you some time to think about it." So I went back and I told the guys, and the guy was telling me, "Say, listen." You know, they were sitting there explaining to me why I should leave. And I was adamant about staying. You know, and the guy was telling me, he said, Gary, when you came to prison, I was in these cells for 10 years. Now, I'm gone on 20 years after you've been in these cells 10 years. They said if I had a chance to leave these cells, I would have my bag, you know, my, my, my stuff packed, my bag is packed, ready to go. You understand? They said, man, this is your chance, man. This is all you've been, you've been in the cells. You need to get out. I mean, you need to get out these cells. And uh, I was, I mean, I was, I was stubborn. So one of them, you know, until one of them said, Gary, this is what you got going for you. They know who you are. Hmm. If you get out, if you don't like it, they'll send you back. They'll still be gladly send you back to maximum security. And when a guy told me that, it's like a light popped in my head. Choices. You're right. Yeah. It's like a sense of empowerment. I have a choice finally. So I see you're right. I'm gonna think on that. Did you go into Gen Pop? Well, when it, when it, when the board when the, when the board came back, I accepted the offer. Uh, Dora Rabelais, Major Major Height, and uh, Ray Nord. They sent me to the cell block in Main Prison. 
and told me they're just gonna keep me there 90 days. They're gonna release me in general population. 90, no, 1985, they released me to the general population. All this time, were there appeals? Mm -hmm. the, right, you went, yes, you, you went, were fighting. Yes, uh, we appealed my appeal of conviction to the U.S. Supreme Court when they ruled the death penalty unconstitutional in Stanislaw Roberts' case. And uh, they started resentencing everybody, the ones that was on death row for rape, they gave them 20 years. And the ones for murder, they gave them 20 year life sentence. The state of Louisiana, along with several other states, they vehemently opposed me being resentenced, saying that it should be retroactive in my case because I was a juvenile and I, shouldn't, I didn't have the rights as an adult. And eventually, several months later, Louisiana Supreme Court ruled to say no. It's retroactivity, you know, in, in Tyler's case too. So they sent me to a 20-year life sentence. But in the process, my attorneys, then they, they are they're appealing my case in court. And finding out that those people were, uh, the witnesses were false witness. Right, right. Went back, was going back on uh, newly discovered evidence and all that other stuff. And the courts were just, just knocking me down. And, uh, Louisiana didn't want to say we were at fault. No, I mean, of course not. They'd rather keep an innocent man in prison. <laughs> it happens all, all the time. The I know. And, uh, and then we went to the file in the federal court, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's when they took and overturned my conviction and ruled that I received a fundamental unfair trial. I was denied due process of law that my constitution rights was violated. You didn't even get read your Miranda rights. Yep, I didn't, yes. So, uh, and then that's when the Attorney General in Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, and all of that filed for an unbunk hearing in the federal court where all the justices would hear the case. And, on uh, your behalf? Uh, no, on nobody, all the justices. They, did, they wanted the, the, uh, the ruling overturned. Mm -hmm because the Fifth Circuit had overturned my conviction. They so they wanted to re they wanted to make they sure you had to stay. Yeah, yeah they yeah, wanted yeah. to reinstate. So, yeah. so uh, they got their, their All those people? All those people fought to put you to back in prison? Down. Yes. Fuck. Yep, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the, they overturned, the, the Fifth Circuit overturned its, uh, its, 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 uh, its judgment. But they, but you can even read it in the law is that, but they stated that due to my lawyer not objecting to the contemporaneous jury rules objection at that time, it left them powerless to overturn my conviction, even though it was egregious that I received a fundamentally unfair trial and was denied due process of law. But they, they were powerless to overturn my conviction. 41 years, is that correct? Yes. 41 years you were in prison for a crime you did not commit. Right. When you, so while you were in prison, you're being raised up by some of the scariest people in society who were mm -hmm. nurturing you and loving you and teaching you how not to be them. Mm -hmm. And all the while, where feeling like you were never going to get out. Well, 
I've never gotten to that part because I never lost hope that I would ever get out of prison. But there was times where I wondered whether I would die in prison. Mm. All right? That was one of the things. And the most scariest things that you go through while in prison is that will your mother and father pass on you while you're in prison? That was my dreaded fear. And that happened? And, I would lose, and it happened. So sorry. Yep. What are your parents' names? My, fa my father's name is Euless, and my mother's name was Nita. Yep, Tyler. And my father died a young man. My father was 56 years old when he died. Yep, my mother, she was, what, 80 years old when she died. She died of staph infection in the hospital. Mm. Yeah. So, but ever losing, for me, ever losing hope, no, I didn't lose hope. I couldn't, I mean, I didn't have, didn't have it in me because I saw so many people that lost hope where they committed suicide, where they did things that was unspeakable and I wasn't going to do that. So I didn't, I didn't want, you know, my thing was that I wasn't going to meet that kind of fate at all. So what I did was that. Why not work to try to make the best out of a bad situation? Why are you here? Do what you think that is best to make you a better person. And that's when I learned that before I moved forward, I had to learn how to forgive in order for me to be able to move forward and to and to be more open and you would say and, and, and meaningful of doing you know doing meaningful things in life. Were you able to forgive all those people? Oh, yes, I mean yes, of course. It was it was poison. I mean, understand. I'm in prison. I'm in prison with men. I don't know whether they were innocent or not, but I knew a lot of them was angry. I knew a lot of them came to prison, they just had two to three years and round up with 50 years, round up with a life sentence because, because of what they did in prison. And they were upset and they acted out. They did all kinds of things. And when I'm talking about men who had invested a lot in me and was telling me that don't follow them in their path. You understand? Don't round up like them. And it's a thing where I see how they were acting out. I saw the bitterness in them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that because I was beginning to see myself in order for me to change. I had to start to forgive I have to start looking at circumstances of people like the two girls that I knew who lied on me in court. They were younger than me. I didn't hear when they said that they were threatened. Only thing in my mind was that I knew I was threatened and I was beaten. They were trying to kill me. That's all I looked at, what was happening to me, but 
Never once did I look looked at, hey, wait a minute. It's bigger than just you. It's people that have been victimized all around you. Kids who have been who have been threatened, traumatized, a family that had lost a loved one. You know, so it's a lot of people that understand that has lost and suffered a lot in this ordeal. And I'm here and I'm mad at the world. I'm mad at everybody. I'm mad at the uh 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 those who went to school with me that one time considered friends. I'm mad at the family who lost a loved one. I'm mad, I'm mad at the system for what they've done me. The police officer for damn near killing me. All of this stuff here. I had nothing but anger. And how I'm going to move forward with that burden on my back. So I had to forgive. I had to move forward. You know, and my mother kept, you know, my mother always tell me, you know, don't dwell on these things. Move forward. You got to survive this. Even when I'm not here, you still got to struggle. You still got to make the best of things because you're living. You know? Mm -hmm. And she believed, she believed, she believed that one day I was going to get out. Did you get to go to her funeral? Yes. As a matter of fact, before my mother died, I was able to go to the hospital to visit my mother. Wow. Yes. That speaks greatly of, of how you were thought of by the prison itself. And, and you, know, I, you know, I tell people all the time that I lived a very unusual life in prison. I went to prison where I was revered with hate by prison guards and also by white prison inmates because they only knew that this is a this is a person who was who was sent to prison for killing a white kid. That's all they that's all they need to do. Their mind was shut. And I was hated for that. How could you combat things like that? I wouldn't know how to do it. But you know the secret behind it is that you don't live up to people's expectations. You don't live up where people can feel justified of hating you. You don't give them a reason to hate you. And that's what I learned. I learned that don't act out in hate. Don't act out in anger. Don't give some, anyone something to use against you. Always strive to better yourself. And that's what I did. I learned how to forgive. And I practice it. I talk to other people. And they practice it. And we all practice it together. And that's what I did. You created a group of, of people that could come and talk about their big feelings. Well, the, the, <laughs> the thing was that the drama club, <laughs> the drama club gave me that platform. And you created that, correct? No, the drama club was created in 1976. Okay. I was still in the cell block. I didn't get out the cell block until uh, until eighty until eighty five. It was created in 1976, but it was an organization that I got involved in, and and I realized that 
Drama was a, was a theater of expression where the things that you feel that you can put it on stage. If you want people to hear what you have to say, you can exemplify it on stage. But if you really want to educate your audience, you got to be mindful and careful how you do it. If you want to educate someone, educate, give somebody something that would stimulate them where they could think about it and say, you know what, I agree with that. Don't perpetuate hate. Don't perpetuate negativism. And that's what I used to tell the guys. Who used to tell me, man, I can't act. Don't never say what you can't do unless you try. Who well, I can't rap. Don't never say that you can't do that unless you try. I used to tell them that all the time. And, oh man, I, I can't read. I've been trying to read all my life. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I just can't do it. I said, listen. We don't move as fast as the slowest man in here. Only thing I just want you to do is sit next to this person here. And as they recite the line, he's gonna sit there and he's gonna show you what, what the guy is saying. Visually, you're gonna eventually pick it up. And it got to the point within six months, I had guys who was functionally illiterate start writing their own plays, start writing poems, skits, and everything, who wanted to be a part of this and that day, had guys doing that. So to me, I felt theater was therapeutic. Did you get to pick what you would perform or was that? Well, I was the one that made a decision what they're gonna put on that stage. Okay. Because I was the one that gonna be held accountable. <laughs> you were the director. I was, I was the director and president of the drama club. So nowhere in the world I was gonna let them get up there and insult the whole prison population, to assault the administration or, be, or degrade women or anything, even uh, 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 you could say a uh, gaze. I wasn't going to do that. I told we was an equal opportunity organization. Mm -hmm. You know? And I believe the drama club had the highest uh, 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 recidivism rate than any club in prison. If an individual leave, they come, come back. back. Yeah. You understand? Oh, they had a high rate of recidivism. I had a high rate in my club. Really? They kept coming back? They kept coming they back. They wanted to be in the theater. They <laughs> <laughs> Screw Broadway. Yeah. They kept well, you know, not getting out of prison and coming back. But if they happen to get out of prison and round up back to prison, they come back to the drama. Club. Right. But if they happen to get transferred to go to another, uh, 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 you can say out camp, and they round up back in the main prison, they come back to the drama club. If they if they uh, somehow get kicked out the drama club because of misbehavior, they come back to the drama club. <laughs> Because the only thing I used to do is tell them that, okay, you know what you need to do? Get up in front of everybody and apologize for acting ass. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to accept you. You know, we don't leave no one behind. And they no problem. And you started performing outside of prison, even with, the, there was a female counterpart, right? There were the women's prison also. No, no, before that, you were talking about the, uh, what we did, the, uh, the Life of Jesus Christ play. But before that, you know, the, uh, the prison used to have prisoners go to different venues 
out on the streets in society where they go to schools, they go to churches, they go to different events, and they speak about you know, their experiences, their testimonies, and uh, how prison life and stuff like that to inform those out in society that stopped it. But during the transformation of the prison itself, we have for we had Warden Whitley, who came to uh, who came to be the warden at Angola, and uh, and Warden Whitley remembered me. He was like a counselor there. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I just say counselor. It eventually come to my mind what I want to say, but he was he was there and he was a young guy, but he remembered me. He remembered me being uh, in that, you could say, in CCR and everything. And, uh, and when he came back as a warden, he come back and found out that I'm over the drama club now. He remembered this kid being on death row, being in, say, uh, being in the cells. And now this kid got out and this kid is in, he's the president of the drama club? Where's mindset at? And, you know, and so Wilbur Rito, who was the... Uh, who was the uh, editor of the Angolite magazine? Wilbur and I were good, we were good friends, and Wilbur knew uh, 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 Warden Whitley. And they went to talking and everything, and uh, Whitley, you know, Warden asked about me and stuff like that, and what I do, and, he, and Wilbur told him. Wilbur said, you know, so the Warden came up there to one of our rehearsals, and he liked what he saw. And he asked me, he said, uh, what you like to do? Understand? If you give an opportunity, you know, with your group. I told him, I said, well, I would like for my group to serve as ambassadors to society to go out there and perform at schools and universities. And he said, you know, we can make that possible. Because he said, when I was here, I remember they used to let guys go out and talk to different places. They don't have that here no more. He said, but you know, I thought it was a good thing that they had these things going on. I think I think it's possible we can we can have that. So what he did, by him knowing some people, Nick Nordite and Carl, uh, or Charlotte Nordite, Charlotte Nordite, she she uh, she did drama and everything, so she came in and worked with us and she was amazed at the level level of acting and writings that we were doing. And she hooked up with uh, Deborah Hardy, and next thing you know, we got an engagement at LSU. So here you got prisoners going out in society at a college performing. So we went to LSU, we started going to other venues, uh, uh, Southern University. So we, start, we just start traveling. And later, you know, change of, uh, change of administration, we traveled for a while up under uh, Burl Kane, but Burl Kane eventually, he shut it down and uh, but we, as an organization of drama, we start performing for the prison population, and also at uh, different special functions and banquets that organizations had and stuff like that. We start doing that, and uh, one of the assistant wardens, Kathy uh, uh, Fano, she went to uh, she went to Scotland, and she went to saw the life of, the life of Jesus Christ play. It was like a promenade that there was you know, that the the audience they walked through the scenes of the uh, of the religious play, and she said, you know, she said we can do this. 
See, when I go back, I'm going to talk to the ward. See, we can do this ourselves because we got the land and we got the prisoners. We got a, we got a, a theological seminary there, people that study religion. And she said, I'm going to bring it to them and uh, we, can, we can make this happen in the United States inside a prison for the first time. So she came back and she talked to the warden and the warden agreed and, and she went to the religious community and they told her that it was above their pay grade, that they weren't able to do it. And, uh, and somehow my name came up and they told her that if anybody can do this, Gary Tyler can do it. And she asked them, Gary Tyler said, yes. They respect Gary. And, uh, and Gary would know the right people to do it. So she called me and she asked, she said, oh, I want you to see this, you know, watch this, this. So I watched it. And then, you know, sometime later we got together and she told me, she said, uh, she also gave me the script, <laughs> thousand page. And uh, she talked to me. She said, you think you can do this? I had my reservations. I kind of like, you know, told her I don't think it's possible because I don't go to church. I'm not a Christian. And, uh, and I don't believe in affronting anyone in their religion. And she told me that you had others that felt different and that I was highly recommended by the religious community to do it. And I, I still wasn't inspired to do it, at least encouraged to do it. So I try to, in a way, in a roundabout way, try to sabotage it. But the more I tried to work against it, the more people wanted to do it, like my guys, you know? And I thought I knew what, was, what would be the right thing to sabotage it. It wouldn't work because uh, with them, if it's not having women, they were willing to play the women roles. <laughs> That's how Shakespeare did it. <laughs> <laughs> but they were dead set that they wanted to do it. You understand? So, uh, even though with that big old play didn't change their mind, almost thousand page play that wouldn't change their mind. The big scenes in the dialogue wouldn't change their mind. The absence of women wouldn't change their mind. So I couldn't convince them otherwise and I tried to use the same method with the administration. Of course, they looked at me like I was losing my mind, talking about bringing women in, inside, having women to do with it. I mean, Bringing women to prison, they're like trying to mix oil and water together. You understand? So I told them that I can't do it unless I have the women thinking that, all right. No thinking one, that they would say no they way. I said no way. Yeah. They gave, gave me the women. <laughs> <laughs> they gave me the women. So now I'm stuck with this. You got the women's prison. I got the women, yeah. So I had to go to the women's prison and audition the women. And the women was talking so much crap about how they would outdo my guys, Sham. And I know my guy was pretty good. They'd do anything. They do women roles, they do anything. I get them to tell me I act like a child. They get on there acting like a child. You understand? Mm -hmm. If told them that, go get up there and act like they are uh, like they gay, they get up there and act like they gay. They do all of that. All right? 
And uh, I mean, they, the women got there, they was talking so much to tell them, it kind of intimidate me now. Had me think, wow, these women, God, they're really serious, son. So, uh, and then one up told me, say, yeah, that's right, when, you, when we get together, we're gonna, eat your, we're gonna eat your guy's lunch. I said, okay. So I came back and uh, I told my guys and, and I worked them and, you know, and it was a requirement that everybody in the play got to at least learn two or three rows. Mm -hmm. Not one row, but two or three. And, uh, but you know, I got permission to let me re-edit the whole script from the author. And I rewrote, I basically rewrote the whole play. Wow. I took a lot out and I put something in, some in. Yep. You made it 999 pages. <laughs> Less. <laughs> <laughs> you understand, I bought a, what I did is I got the more highlighted significant yeah. scenes and I put, I enhanced that, put things together and I put more, I put more people in those scenes. And did you put this on for the community as well? Well, we put it, yeah, for, uh, for the community as well. Matter of fact, when we did it, we were shown in 36 countries around the, around the world oh, by wow. satellite. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, then they even, they even did a, a documentary called Cast the First Stone. Yeah, out of, out of all of that. Incredible. Yeah. And do you know... I had people that was involved in that, that, uh, that at one time was rejected by the prison population because they looked at that these people got mental problems. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to have anything because they were considered like pariah. Nobody wanted to be associated with anyone that they considered crazy. But these guys, they became part of my organization. They were the first ones then, the last one to leave. They made sure everything was set up and everything was put back in place. Cause they was, they, you know, they felt, you know, felt that they belonged here. They were, it was a place where they, they felt they weren't judged and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's what go back to what I said, therapy, you know, therapy. The whole thing was, you know, drama was like very therapeutic to a whole lot of them. Yep, and that's that's how it was. And all the while, people are fighting hard to get you released. There's yes. all sorts of organizations yeah. and protests mm -hmm. and letters and lawyers and yeah. all sorts of folks. Going before the pardon board, three, three tries at the pardon board and uh, had people come through all the way from California to give me a job, you understand? Like Bob Zog and Gary Shapner, correct? Yes, <laughs> they come to interview me for a job. Yeah. yeah, and I got the job, but the governor wouldn't sign the board. Even though what three or four boards said yes, three pardon boards recommended favorable recommendations. Yeah, I was denied twice. How do you not completely lose your mind when you know that everyone's like, yes, let this guy out, and there's still a governor or a warden or whatever saying no? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess some things and people that, that never changed. And I told people, say, how are you able to survive prison life? I said, I think one thing that played in my behalf is that I was young and stubborn. 
that I refused to give up. And that's what happened. And at 41 years later, when they said, you're getting out, how did you wrap your head around that? Well, when it was told that to me, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it until it happened. Even when it happened, I still had questions about it. Until one night I woke up uh, physically pinching myself in the middle of the night. I woke up and, and I see that I'm not in Angola. Man, you need, to, you need to come to grasp with things that you are out. Because everything was so surreal. I cannot imagine. I mean, can you imagine what happened in the courthouse? For many years, I, you know, I got opposition. I got opposition from, from, uh, from the family, opposition from the state, opposition from the police department, from the DA's office. I got opposition everywhere. You understand? And this day in court, The same, I mean, I didn't get out, I, I, there was no opposition whatsoever. But you know, people say, what happened, what happened, what happened? You know, even though I'm not a Christian, I'm not religious, I am spiritual. And change have a way of changing people. Time and all that way of changing people. And when, when Moses went into Egypt to free the Jews, did he literally brought them into freedom? No. They wandered in the desert for how long? Long ass time. 40 years. 40 years, yeah. And what happened within the 40 years? Huh? Starvation, people died. Yeah, there was a cleansing mm -hmm. to where those who had been in, in bondage for many, many years before that, they had taken on the ways of their oppressors, where Jews was oppressing Jews. Jews became their own masters of their own people. And they felt that this was an opportunity for them to do that. But in the desert, as time went on, those people who was of the same mindset of their oppressor, they went to dying off. But at the same time, you had the scholars who was educating the Jewish peoples of their, of their religious fate. As the old die off and the new come in, that was during the cleansing period. And after 40 years, what happened? They was eventually freed from the desert. Use that. Think about what I'm telling you. That the same people who sent me to prison, who was adamant about me staying in prison, it was their, it was their children and grandchildren, the ones that freed me. Wow, that gives me the shivers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. How have you adjusted now that here we are? We've been, you know, we've been a few years out from the day you were released. And April going to make six years. Six years. Yes. And I mean, things like going to the grocery store. I, I imagine the real world was hyper loud. Whatever you, whatever you perceived in your mind, I went through. 
Yeah. You know, can you imagine what I had to go through when I had when I had to go shopping on my own? Now I went shopping with other people. While they went shopping, and I get what I want while I'm shopping. But when it came down to me having to do it on my own, and when I walked in that store, I became discombobulated. I forgot what I wanted. I didn't know what I wanted. And I had to pretend shopping. And then I had to go back to start thinking about the things that I was doing in prison, what I was eating in prison. I went to getting crackers, potato chips. <laughs> you understand? Stuff that I was getting in prison commissary. But I didn't get what I initially came that far because I couldn't, I couldn't remember. So when I finally, you know, by being in there thinking that people said, look at this fool here. He don't even know what he want. People going about their own way, they probably were feeling the same way I felt, confused in the place. But when I left out of there, it was like a, man, it was like all the tension was taken off me. But I knew I just couldn't give up. So a few days later, I went back, but I went back prepared. You know how I went back? I, had, I wrote down all the stuff that I wanted. <laughs> yeah, good, shopping list. I have to do that too. That's what I was yeah. doing in prison with a shopping list. Yeah. All right, so I went there with a shopping list. So yes, I mean, there, there was moments of adjusting what I had to do. You know, like I'm still going through things. Yeah. But it's not as, it's, it's not as challenging as it was, as it was from the beginning. Because when I first came out here, I was so, I was so confused. I couldn't tell you what was, what was south, north, east, or west. I couldn't even tell you, I mean, so for catching the bus, so I had to be trained mm. into these things. People had to literally take me by the hand and show me how to catch the bus, how to t catch the metro train. When I'm somewhere, how I'm going to figure out where I'm at, which way is north, which way is south. Man. I had to understand it happened. It's, it's like I had to readjust my whole perspective when dealing with things. Yeah. You know, and I thought that I, you know, freedom came about when I walked out that prison, uh, prison gate. But it's more than just walking out of a gate. It's being able to do what you want to do on your own without being dependent on other people. That's freedom. When I was when I finally got a call, when I was able to drive and go where I want, that's freedom. <laughs> With responsibilities, though. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the man you grew into while you were in prison had freedom all along as well. In True. your mind, you know that. Well, and that was one thing is that when I was in prison, I never dreamed about prison. I always dreamed about being free. Even today, by me being out, I don't even dream about prison. And you know, I used to work, when I was in prison, I used to work out, out in, uh, outside of the prison. I worked in New Orleans after Katrina for eight and a half months. Cleaning up? Cleaning up. Mm -hmm. Doing all kinds, of, out there in New Orleans. I used to go around, around the state we used to go to work at, uh, at different schools and different other places. 
And these were armed detail or not armed detail? No, I was class A trustee. Meaning? Meaning that we weren't escorted by uh, armed guards. You just were able to go do the work. We were, we were just, the guards were basically our chauffeurs. It's incredible. How could one guard or two guards control five or six or seven prisoners? Right. So you had to trust them. Mm-hmm. And do you know what else? Do you want to hear something? Show to go to show you. Me and th- me and two more other prisoners went out to go do a job out in St. Francisville. The guards that was with us was Major Hayes and and uh, Joy Doza. He was a sergeant. There was an accident that happened where the sergeant almost cut his finger off. And we bandaged it up, put it in a cooler with ice and everything. We got in a truck. Me and another prisoner drove the guard all the way back to the prison. The other guard I mentioned, the major, he stayed on the site at the school. We brought this guard all the way back to the prison. If it was our, if we had in the malice and all, we could have just simply put him on the side of the road and went and went through Mississippi somewhere, according to our Baton Rouge in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. But no, we went all the way back to the prison. And did you know what? When we got to the prison gate, they wouldn't let us in the gate inside. How come? You ever heard of scenarios? Sure. They felt that they would build a scenario. <laughs> yeah, see how would how they would react. Interesting. We had to get the major to call the prison and tell him that this wasn't no scenario. That this was actually an incident yeah, with actually, his guard. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. We prison now. They know us. Yeah. The people at the gate, they know us. We, they didn't know we prisoners. But they, but they wouldn't let us back in the prison. Yeah. It wasn't that we wouldn't let. They didn't hold guns on us, anything. But they wouldn't let us back in the prison. We got a guard here, right? We're with us. Yeah. He's bleeding. Yeah. Did he get to keep his thumb? Uh, yeah, yeah, he did. Okay. Yeah, later he became a supervisor. Huh? Yeah, he became a supervisor over the, uh, you could say, uh, over the shop that we had. Uh, what is what is your life's work now? What are you, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? Well, I think that uh, after after five years of working at the organization Spy, safe place for youth. Safe place for youth. It kind of like gave me an anchor to really to really lay the groundwork of doing some of the things that I was good at in prison. Like making quilts, introducing them into competition, showing other people, and also later hopefully that I get to a non-profit organization that I'm working on, and that uh, if I get that established, I would like to uh, go back into drama, create a, 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 a drama troupe with formerly incarcerated men and women, along with the young, younger population out here in society. And I would like to uh, deal with entertainment, like singing, rapping, and dancing. Mm-hmm. 
and also deal with many documentaries. I want to be able to do that. But the kids will be able to tell about their life stories, their testimonies. Great. You know, and also I want to be able to highlight, you understand, a pandemic of homelessness. Yes. Dealing with the young and older population. That's my, that's my goal and that's what I want to do. If you could tell that 16-year-old kid something right before he entered prison, what would you tell him? Never give up. No matter how difficult, no matter how hard or painstaking things may appear or be, never give up. You don't have the luxury to give up, especially when you're in a situation that you understand that, that you've never been into. Look at those who have overcome their oppression. You know, and that's how I have. I looked at what the Jews went through, what the Indians went through, what people over there in India went through with Mahatma Gandhi, mm-hmm. what black people here in America went through. Are going through. Yes, they ain't steady going through. You know, it's a thing where oppression breeds resistance. And for you to be in a position that none of you are making but you're being victimized by it. You have every right in the world to fight. You understand? That's good trouble. That's the trouble you should always fight. Even if you see others that's up under pressure, never ignore and forget or, or, or turn your back on that. Because if you do, the same ones that are pressing them could be knocking on your door. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Yeah. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. Tell people how they can find you out on the internets and things. Well, Where's I, <laughs> well I'm, uh, uh, I'm basically, I mean, if they really want to read about my story, they can go to Wikipedia or they can Google it. Well, this right. is your story. Yeah. But I mean, like if they want to reach out to you or if they have questions or if somebody wants to start a... a yes, they or... can. Uh, well, my, uh, my email is garrettyler710gmail.com. Okay. Yes. So they can contact me that way. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, this has been incredible. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Bye.